Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Redeemer Bible Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at RedeemerSoCal.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, the Gospel of John that you may believe until the whole world sees, part three. The original date of this message was the 15th of October, 2023. Well, I am Pastor Jason, and it is such a blessing to be back with you. My youngest daughter Kylie and I took off two weeks ago, right after this service, traveled to Missouri to help my wife and her mother and brother and sister care for her ailing dad that uh, was in the hospital and praise the Lord, he turned things around um, really amazingly. And within two weeks, we were were able to help bring him home and uh, just heard Yesterday that he went from having to use a walker all day to using a cane and he is doing so so much better So praise the Lord. Thank you for praying for us Lord kept us safe traveling out there traveling back and in a car and um, Yeah, I would appreciate continued prayers for for Shannon's dad for our whole family Um, I noticed my my oldest son Blake is here. He is going to be serving overseas with International Mission Board in the country of Italy, and he will be starting that in January, and he leaves next week for a seven-week kind of pre-orientation there, and um, yeah, appreciate prayers for our family and and that as well. Giving up our son to the Lord's work is not a bad thing at all. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 12. I want to begin this morning and in verse 31 that we're going to circle back around and we are going to spend a lot of time here this morning. But I, I wanted to just start off with this passage as, as a lead-in. You know, when we were in Papua New Guinea serving, we saw some terrible, terrible things. I've mentioned this before. We've see, we saw babies, newborn babies, buried alive in order so that somebody might come forward and say that they were the ones that had been meeting with a village prostitute hoping she was hoping that they would take her as another as another wife we we saw fights that were brutal and yet none of them hold a candle to what we've heard about that has happened in the Gaza strip And I don't want any of us to think this morning that somehow Satan is in control of all things. And perhaps your world has spun out of control a little bit after seeing that. I want to steady us upon the Word of God. I want to steady us upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to take God's Word and I want to show to us this morning the encouragement that we see in the very words of Jesus Christ all relating to the cross and the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection. So look at verse 31 this morning. As Jesus says this, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. We're going to see that Jesus is proclaiming victory long before victory comes. And as Jesus goes to the cross and dies upon the cross, he gives us victory over sin because he conquered death, sin, and Satan. 
As we begin our time this morning, I I wanted to remind us all the victory that Jesus Christ has over Satan, over sin and death. That there is a, a now and a not yet fulfillment of this victory. Because the reality is, Satan is still out there, seeking whom he could devour. And his plan is that he would lead as many to a dying, eternal death and torment in hell with him as he possibly can. And yet we know that Jesus has made another way. The only way to the Father. The only way to eternal life. By conquering death. By conquering sin. By conquering Satan. And even though we might see that Satan continues to have an effect on this world. God is sovereign over and above all. And nothing is happening that God isn't allowing to happen and even happen within his divine perspective and will and preordained plan. All of this is falling perfectly into God's plan. Do you believe that this morning? Do you stand in the victory of Jesus upon the cross and in his resurrection? And is that giving you hope? Even when you you read and you hear about or perhaps you've actually seen the things that happened from the Hamas terrorists on the Gaza Strip and the things that they did to the Jews there. I I know it's a little dangerous for me to to stand up here and to take sides, but I'm going to do this because we all should recognize that there, there is a group here that is wrong. There, there is a group here that is clearly sinful in the way that they are acting. And it is not the Jews. It, it is the Hamas terrorist group. We, we can clearly see that what they have done in, in killing, murdering people, that that is against God's law. And, and the fact that they have raped, they've pillaged, that is against God's law. They, they've slaughtered, beheaded little babies. And, and, and yet what I hear from, from our beloved country are, are, are people actually siding with them. And I, I don't understand it. I guess I do understand it when you walk away from God's word. And so what I want to say this morning is not that everything that the nation of Israel, that the Jewish people have done is right. Everything that they are doing right now is right. Or, or what they will do is right. But, but I want to say clearly that, that they are in the right in this and that they have been wronged, sinfully wronged, terribly wronged. I think we'd all agree that, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was what? Was wrong. That U- Ukraine was decimated. They're still being decimated. And, and very similar, we see the same with Hamas and this terrorist group. And what they're doing is unmistakably wrong. And I, and I would agree with our president, Joe Biden, who, who said of this event that it's pure, unadulterated evil. It's sheer evil. It's indiscriminate evil. And so how should we look at this event? I'm saying all of this so that we can pray more so that we would be a church, that we would be a body of believers that is committed to praying, to praying for the Jewish people, 
to praying for the Hamas people themselves and, and, and these terrorists and the Palestinians and everybody affected. But I don't want us to think that on the one hand, oh, Pastor Jason, that must mean Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Whenever somebody tells you Jesus is coming back tomorrow or tells you the day, don't listen to them. Don't know the day. I, I want us to understand from God's word and, and second. Timothy chapter 3 is a, a good place for us to start. You don't have to turn there, just listen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 5. This is what Paul says about the time that we live in, which would start from the time that, that Jesus is crucified, raised, and then ascended. And this would be the, the last days. That's how Paul describes it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. This is the time that we live in. And what we can say emphatically, definitively, is that we are closer today to Jesus' return than we were yesterday. Amen? We can say definitively that things are going to continue to get worse rather than better. It's what we see in God's Word. Anything more than that, you start to jump into the realm of the unknown to where you are, you, you're, you're lead, reading into God's Word. What we see from Scripture is it's clear. Jesus says the time is not known by us. In fact, turn with me to Matthew. How, how should we be thinking about this? Matthew chapter 24. You see, I don't want us to make too much of this as far as our eschatology goes and end times and all of these things. I want us to recognize that there are certain things that we know are going to happen and that God is not finished with his work with the nation of Israel. He still has more work to do. But look at what Matthew chapter 24 verses 9 to 14 say. Jesus speaking of what will happen in the future. And the challenge that this is to us is to how we should respond to what we've seen. For one, we are going to see clearly from God's word that Satan is the loser. And that we are on the winning side if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that should give us so much hope and confidence. But there's another side. That this should wake us up as well. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. And will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That is where we are heading. The, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people are there right now and they don't believe in his name. Just based upon biblical history, they are still being gone after. Wanting to be eradicated by different groups. This, this proves God's word. This lets us know that God is true in all that he says. 
And that for those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, things are going to continue to get worse and worse, and this world is going to become more antagonistic and against us. Over and over again. And the response is to stand strong and true and hold on to God's word and honor him just as Jesus did. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Do we not see that? It's going to get worse. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I can say definitively, that has to happen. And I can say definitively that I know of tribes, people group in Papua New Guinea who have yet to hear. So the gospel must what? Must continue to go forth. And we must place our trust in that. And that what God is doing is all part of his plan to bring more and more people to a saving knowledge of him. But you personally, how should you be responding? Look at the end of Matthew 24. Here we see clearly you and I are not to be determining what the date is. That Jesus Christ, his second coming is going to come back on this particular day in this year. Oh, we need to be centered in the word of God. And, and we need to know what the Word of God teaches. But look at what we hear. We hear that we are to be alert. Therefore, be on the alert, verse 42. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you living your life in such a way that if Jesus Christ were to come here, right here, right now, and take his church, us, that there would be no shame involved in your life? That there'd be no question as to your loyalty, your obedience to our king, and to you following our good shepherd, and you proclaiming him everywhere that you go. But you may be asking, I was actually asked this question this week, but what about the Jews? Jason, what's the deal with the Jews today? Are they still God's chosen people or not? Yes, they are. Is God still dealing with them the way that he used to in the Old Testament? No, he is not. Is there a time coming when he will? Yes, work and complete all of his promises towards the nation of Israel. Yes, that time is coming, but don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word, which is God's word. Turn with me to Romans. Please just put up with me for a little bit. I, I, I want to... <laughs> I want to lay down a foundation so that we all know what, what is happening. Are Jews being saved today? Amen. We, we support a Jew who is saved with Jews to the nation. What? Olivier, 
Melnick. He, he is all about sharing Christ with Jews who have not yet believed. But look at what God's Word says about the time that we live in. In particular, in relationship to the Jewish people. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Romans 11, verse 25. Paul, oh man, okay. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. This is always such a humbling thing for me. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Something that before was hidden and is now going to be revealed. There are several of them in Scripture. This has to do with the nation of Israel. God's what? Chosen people. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What happened? They missed their Savior. No, worse than they missed their Savior, they crucified their Savior. But God's not done. What God says and what God's word says is right now, the first thing that we see about this mystery is that they have, the Jews have been given this hardened hearts to the gospel. So what is the norm? The norm is, is that when a Jewish person hears the gospel, they say, no, I don't want that. He's not our Savior. That doesn't mean that there aren't still Jews being saved during this age, which is the church age, that we're a part of. But what is so amazing and so true to the faithfulness of our God is that that is not the end of their story. And how much grace do we see in this verse? That even though they rejected their Messiah, even though they really have a history of a nation, of turning away from God the Father, of Yahweh, and going after and seeking foreign gods and really committing adultery with them is, is the way that it's used or figured in Scripture. That even in spite of all of that, and this is so good for you and I to remember, even in spite of all that, and then the very God, their God, the very God of their ancestors shows up as a man and does these miraculous things and preaches these sermons that just had to be the, the best sermon you would ever hear. Truth upon truth. And what do they do? They still reject him. And they still crucify him. And when it's all said and done, then, then it's like God puts a pause button on the nation of Israel and he injects us, the church, why? Because that's God's heartbeat the whole time that the whole world would hear and believe. And then God says this, okay, now their hearts are hardened, but there is coming a time when this hardening and rejecting of Jesus will be done. And here we see that all Israel will be saved. Sometimes all means all. Sometimes all means all the elect, all those that God has chosen to come to him. And I believe this will happen at the end of the tribulation period. That is when everything will make sense for the Jews as a nation, as a people. That they will finally understood, oh, are you kidding me? He was our Messiah. And they will turn to him. And they will believe. And so as a result, how should we respond? We should respond today by praying. 
and recognizing that, yes, God is not finished with them as a nation, as a people, but right now the way that they are going to be saved is through the proclamation of the gospel. It's no wonder that Paul, just a couple chapters earlier, says in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, speaking of his own people, is what? Is for their salvation. So first and foremost, we need to be praying that the Lord would use this to save many Jews and all that is going on. And, and I would say that along with that, let's pray for the other side. Let's not be one-dimensional in, in how we pray as a church. That, that isn't what I want for us as your pastor. I want us to pray for all that is involved. The Palestinians, the, the, these Hamas terrorists, Yes, by all means, let's pray that God would thwart and frustrate and stop what they are doing. But let's pray that the gospel would go forth. That Christ's church would, would stand and shine for Jesus during this time. And right now, how do we do that? Here, sitting in these chairs in Temecula? We pray. So let's do just that. Heavenly Father, we, yeah, we, we are awestruck, really, over what has transpired, what has happened, that in our society, I could see these kinds of things happening in the jungles where there's really no military, there's no legal system, so to speak, police. And yet the things that we've seen happen on the Gaza Strip happen to your chosen people. They, they shake us down to the core of who we are as we recognize the sinfulness of man and what we are truly capable of doing and even the way that people respond to what is being done, Lord. We, we pray first and foremost for these Hamas terrorists that you would save them, that they would come to an understanding of their own sinfulness, trust in your Son as their Savior and the only way to escape eternal hell and torment. We pray that you would thwart their efforts, that you would frustrate them, that you would do whatever needs to be done so that they would be defeated and this would stop. We pray for anybody affected on both sides, Lord that you would have your way. And we pray for, for the Jews. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray for those that are still being held captive. We pray for the fighting. We pray for just the grotesque things that have already happened. That your grace would be evident. That you would save many. That you would protect them as we know that you will. Because we know that your plan going into the future includes the Jewish people. And so we rejoice in your goodness in spite of what we see before us happening. In spite of this war that has come out of nowhere. But nothing takes you by surprise and we stand upon you and who you are this morning. And we pray all these things in the only name that we can pray. The name of our mediator, the name of our go-between. In the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Okay, let's get back to John. John chapter 12. For those of you who weren't here two weeks ago, I, I started off on this passage, Romans 12, verses 27 all the way to 36. And all I got through were the first two verses because there is so much truth for us to glean and understand and who we see Jesus Christ to be and how he's represented to us and the way that he functions. And it is so encouraging for us that as Jesus, as we saw, contemplated the cross, that, that he was in utter agony. That as he looked forward to the cross, it was more than just his breath being taken away. It was such as it was him literally sweating drops of blood in another account when he's at the garden. Similar. That this went to the core of his soul. And he was in agony. And he was in turmoil. But it wasn't because of the pain. It wasn't that aspect that was pulling on him so much. It wasn't even what, what we see in the same word used for what led Jesus to cry. Earlier, with Lazarus and all those that were there to mourn for him, as he saw the effects of sin, and he saw the effects of death upon a family, and we all get that. None of us want our, any of our family members to die before us. Isn't that true? I want to be the first one. Oh, wait. I want to be the last one. <laughs> like, wait, that sounded selfish. I want to be the last one. I, I, I want to bury everyone, but I want to live like 200 years, I guess. None of us like that. But that isn't what Jesus is, is thinking about. That was then. This is now. Now Jesus is recognizing that the cross is before him. And so it's ever before him in his mind and what he's thinking. And, and what is utmost in his mind isn't the pain isn't the effect that it will have upon his mother who will watch him being whipped, being beaten, bleeding, hanging on a cross as emotionally tearing and jarring that would be. It wasn't that. What, what was in, in the mind of our Lord was the fact that he would have to bear the wrath of God, that he would have to bear the wrath of his father to bear the punishment, the penalty, and, and yes, to some extent, the very presence of sin. That, 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 sh that shouldn't make sense to us because he's God. And yet that's what he went through. And even before he goes through it, he's experiencing it as if it has already happened. This isn't the first time that you see Jesus in agony over this. This isn't the only account where we see it. And yet we see, I don't know how encouraging is this, that he's willing to go forward with it. That what's greater to him than being relieved of the pain and being relieved of this whole experience, what's greater than all of that and his suffering is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish the plan of redemption for us and for the Father. Oh, what a Savior. And then we see, oh, what a Father. And this consoling answer of God the Father. 
As Jesus says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. All I want is for you to receive glory. And then look at the, it's as if the Father can't help but answer him. He has to speak. Then a voice came out of heaven. I both glorified it and will glorify it again. How encouraging it is for us, at least it should be, that in Jesus' terrible time and thinking through his suffering and, and, and putting his, his whole heart out there to the Father, the Father isn't silent. And this isn't even for Jesus, right? We're told later that he's doing this for their sake. Implied is the understanding that the Father and the Son have already had this interaction. That Jesus Christ has already voiced this to the Father. And the Father's already comforted him and encouraged him. That, that should give us so much encouragement when we're going through our suffering. But it should be a challenge as well. That instead of dwelling in our despair... And instead of trying to take the first and easy path out, that we commit ourselves to doing whatever we need to do going forward for the glory of God, and that we start all things when it comes to the struggle that we feel sometimes in our souls over what we should do because of the trials that we're going through, where we should start is in prayer, going to the Father. And so we see that, and those are in your notes. Jesus contemplates the cross. Then we have the consoling answer from the Father. And then we see next the claim of victory. The claim of victory. So Jesus answered, verse 30, and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Notice what he says first. Hey, the Father has said these things not for me, but for your sake. Why? Maybe one of the biggest reasons is because Jesus was human. And as such, I think all of us tend to downplay the fact that that just because he looks like us and talks like us, that he's like us. That they might have missed Jesus solely because he looked just like them and he spoke just like them and he walked just like them and he had the same mannerisms that they had maybe even the same facial expressions and they're thinking no way could this be anyone but a man and so God the Father says no I want to make this unmistakable I want all those who are there this time listening to what Jesus just said to recognize that he is altogether different. He is perfectly man, but he is perfectly God. And that is why God the Father speaks. And yet they miss him. Some think it's thunder. Some think it's an angel. Let let that be a warning to you. What is God's word like to you? As you come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, are are you hearing the word of God or are you hearing thunder? What's understood? Something that doesn't make sense. Something that really is just scary. Or angel speak. What is that to be understood? It's something that's not understandable. Are, Are you catching everything that the Lord wants to teach you as you spend time in the word, as you come here on Sundays? How are you preparing your heart before you come on Sunday? And what is your attitude like? Oh, I hope Pastor Jason brings it this morning. 
Because if he doesn't bring it, I'm bored. As if it's about me. No, no. What did Spurgeon say? Hey, we don't have to defend the word of God. It's a lion. We just open the gate and let it loose. Is that your attitude towards God's word? That you want to hold on to everything that he has for you this morning? Are you excited about coming? Not, not because of this guy, but because of him and who is presented in the word to us and how this word is living and active and the effect that it can have on our hearts. But is it having that effect? That's challenging. And all of this is a point to Jesus claiming victory over Satan, over death, over sin. Getting their attention. You need to listen to this. God the Father just said that, not for my sake, because I am God, and we are one, but for your sakes. And then he says this, now, now is the time. Notice up to this point, that isn't what Jesus has been saying at all. It's not until we get to chapter 12. And there is a major transition. Everything slows down for the last week of Jesus' life because it is so important. And he lets them know, now is the time. Before it was not yet, no, not yet, no, not yet, no, not yet. Now it's, man, it is coming. Before the creation of time, this has been the plan, and our triune God knew it. And the Son of God knew it. And so what does he say? Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Notice two dimensions are said and given by Jesus Christ regarding his victory over sin, death, and Satan, that it's turned on end. That instead of rejoicing and saying salvation has now been, is going to be made known, he says instead judgment has come. Why? Because he's speaking to a group of folks that he knows later on next week will come to verse 37. Jesus knows this already. He's already seen it. He keeps doing miracle after miracle, proclaiming truth after proclaiming truth. And what is the response? Oh, some believe, but there are many who stay in their unbelief. Look at verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They still didn't get it. Jesus recognizes that. And so while it's true, you could say, oh, are you kidding, Pastor Jason? I know John 3, 16 and 17. You already preached on that. I've etched it in my memory. Right? Oh, plus, you just know it because everybody knows John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but would have everlasting life. Then right after that, it says, for God did not send his, world, his son into the world to what? To judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. So isn't this contradicting that? No. You, you need to look at salvation as a coin. And, and on the head side is salvation. You believe you will be saved. The flip side of that, that points back to this day, the flip side of that is judgment. The flip side of that is condemnation. For all those who do not believe, you believe, then you are blessed upon blessed. And you will enjoy all of eternity with God in heaven and our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. You do not believe and you will be like Satan. And you will join him 
and eternal torment. That's what Jesus means. That yes, he came to bring salvation, but that salvation doesn't come to everyone. We've seen that in the Gospel of John. And for those who will not believe, it means judgment. So all those who do not believe, whether it's back then during this day and all the Jewish leaders and so many others in verse 37, some of these Greeks, Jesus' work on the cross and what he accomplishes on that day, purchasing redemption through his blood, paying for sin, complete, and offering forgiveness on that particular day when he dies upon the cross, All who do not believe receive a crushing blow as Jesus hung on the cross and raised, was raised from the dead. Their judgment by God the Father through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross forever sealed their fates as condemned sinners. This doesn't mean that anybody who died before Jesus Christ wasn't also condemned. They were. But this means that this was God's plan all along. And at this point, this is like the epicenter of salvation. If somebody were to ask me what the most important day in the history of mankind, it would be this followed by the resurrection. I don't know if I could pull the two apart because they're really one. But notice who else is affected. It's not just the whole world, and it is the whole world. That is why we must preach the gospel to the entire world. That is why we went to Papua New Guinea. That is why we support so many missionaries from all sorts of different venues and ministries as far as locations where they're serving the Lord. That is why my son is going to Italy to proclaim him everywhere, not knowing who it is that God has elected but trusting that in that particular place where he is ministering that God will save because the whole world of because of what Jesus did is now condemned but look at what it says about Satan what is he called what is the title used for him this this is very significant he's called the ruler of this world John uses this Title for Satan three times. 1430 and 1611, all in the Gospel of John, but this is the first time. It's as if he waits till he gets to this point. All to point to Satan. All to point to the fact that Jesus is going to take Satan down, so to speak. He is going to destroy his power over mankind. And he's going to do it upon the cross. He is going to give all those who... Satan was accusing before the Father now an opportunity to not be accused. So in that sense, Satan would be silenced. Because that's what Satan does. Turn with me to Job. Why is he called the ruler of this world? It goes back to the garden. It goes back to the beginning. Because since the fall of man and what we see in, in Genesis chapter 3, all who were born into this world are born condemned sinners, born in bondage. 
and kept under the power of Satan except for one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is Satan's plan? I know that he is the deceiver and we see that in Revelation, but we also must recognize that Satan is the accuser. And we tend to not think of the, the book of Job as giving us this insight, but it is what we see. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, would give us the idea that this was a common occurrence. That Satan would come into the presence of God. And that as he would come into the presence of God, he would kind of belittle different people of mankind. Pointing out to Yahweh, oh look, there's another sinner. Oh look, there's another sinner. Oh, are you kidding me? The only reason why he follows you is because you're so good to him. Sinner, 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 sinner. Like me, they all deserve hell and eternal punishment. Now there was a day, verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Did God not know? Of course he knew. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around it. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not even to be compared to God. He is a created being. I think we give him far too much credit than he deserves. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And here we see the accuser. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? You put a hedge of protection around him and take that away and you'll see my accusations about him are all true. They're all well-founded. He's just like everybody else. Satan is the accuser. In Revelation, let's see what happens with Satan. Because there is a word used here in John chapter 12 that is translated cast out. But turn to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. As Jesus has already proclaimed, he's made a prophetic statement that Satan will be cast out. And actually, Satan is cast out numerous times. And the same word used for cast out or translated as cast out in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, is not translated the same way in the book of Revelation. Instead, it's cast out here as thrown. And I want you to think of that. Because that is what Jesus did to Satan on the cross. He rendered him or powerless. And he threw him in the sense that death was conquered, that sin was conquered, and now Satan really had no power to condemn, no power to accuse. And look at what it says in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels wage war. We know the dragon is Satan. And they were not strong enough, speaking of Satan, 
and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was what? Thrown down. The serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Thrown down. All because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. Cast out of heaven. Satan and his angels. But then look at Revelation chapter 20. Here we will see that in verses 1 to 3 that Satan is, again, not cast out, not the way that it's translated here, but thrown. Thrown into an abyss. Thrown into a great big pit. Why? Because Jesus has conquered him. Because Jesus has conquered death. Because Jesus has conquered sin. And so there's a partial and yet not now later fulfillment of what Jesus did on the cross. That this is coming. That just as it was coming that Jesus was going to die on the cross and fulfilled prophecy in so many ways in the Old Testament, here Satan will lose in the end. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. All pointing back to the cross. All pointing back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what we see here is, yes, after the tribulation, then what happens? As we go into the millennium kingdom, where Jesus will reign literally for a thousand years, we see an angel, just one, coming to Satan and grabbing him and chaining him and then throwing him into the abyss. And is that the end? No, that is not the end. What we see later in Revelation 20, look at verse 7. After these thousand years are completed, this is all part of God's plan. And again, this all points to the cross and how good it is for us to be reminding ourselves of this. That Satan does not win. Satan is conquered. Satan is done. Satan one day will be placed in hell. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Amazing that in a time where Satan is bound, Jesus is the righteous king, ruling in righteousness, that after a thousand years of that, there will still be some who don't believe and who follow Satan. And they'll be wiped out. Verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city as if they think because they have so many that they are going to destroy them and yet look at what happens. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It wasn't even a fight. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also because they're already thrown in there. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not believed in Him, turn to Him today. Otherwise, this is your future. You, like Satan and all of his demons, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus is the only way for you not to end with this as your future. Have you believed? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone? That is Satan's destiny. What is yours? And look at what Jesus says as He continues on. In verses 32 to 33. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. And I, if I am lifted up, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. He wanted them all to know that he was going to die on a cross. That he was going to be lifted up. And no doubt the Jews that were there would recognize and understand that he's pointing everybody back to Moses. That he's pointing them back to what happened way back when in the, the days of Moses and the fiery serpents who were killing Jew after Jew after Jew until what? Until God told Moses, hey, I want you to make this serpent out of bronze. I want you to hold it up. And whoever looks upon that serpent, even though the snakes bite him, and the snakes have been killing everybody, no, if they just look at that, then they will be saved. That seeing, that snake was really a picture of believing. And now Jesus is saying, just like that, I'm going to be held up. And all those who see me, who look upon me, who believe that I am the Savior, they will likewise be saved. Be saved from what is waiting for Satan. Eternal separation from God and eternal torment and suffering in hell. That this is the answer. I am the answer. Believe in me. And notice that he makes it so clear that he is speaking of himself as the Son of Man. He doesn't say when the Son of Man is lifted up from the earth. No, he says if I am lifted up from the earth. And they get it. Notice their response is, wait a minute, the Son of Man is going to reign forever. What do you mean? He's not going to suffer and die. No, they didn't listen to Isaiah 52 and 53. They skipped that part. And continually over and over again, they made the Savior into their own image of who they thought the Savior should be instead of who the Savior was going to be and what they truly needed, which wasn't to be saved from Rome, but to be saved from their sin which is exactly what each of us needs. A Savior that would save us from sin. And so Jesus says that if I'm lifted up, I don't like that translation. If you have an ESV, I like your translation. I like the NIV better too. It, it says when. That there's no condition. There's, there's no uncertainty about what Jesus is saying. He knows he's going to the cross. 
And he knows that when he goes to the cross that everything will change. And that then he will draw all men to himself. Again, this, this isn't us searching. This is him pulling us towards him. This is the good shepherd coming and finding his sheep. And bringing us to himself and saving us. As we've seen time and time again in the gospel of John. So as he gives this claim of victory, they respond with a question, are you sure? Who is the Son of Man? And we notice once again that Jesus doesn't answer. Instead, he calls them to believe. He doesn't get into the details about whether or not he's the Son of Man. He's already said this over and over again. He's already pointed them to the fact that the Son of Man is going to die being raised up on a cross. And so what does he do? Instead, he challenges them. Right here, right now, you must believe while I, the light, am with you. Because there is coming a time and it's coming very soon when I will not be with you. And the light, my light, me being the light of the world, will not be here and it will only be darkness. So he's saying, right here, right now, believe. Believe unto me for salvation. Thirty-five and thirty-six. So Jesus said to them, "For a little while longer, the light, speaking of Himself, is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes." Again, referring to them as as he had before with. The religious leaders is being blind. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Saying, if you want to be my sons and daughters, then you must believe in me, that I am the light of the world. And that's what he's pointing them all to, letting them know that the hour to believe is now. It is the same for us today. The hour to believe is now, right now. Today is the day to turn to Jesus and saving faith recognizing that you cannot rely on your own good deeds, coming to church, being better than your next-door neighbor, doing this or that, and hoping that when everything is all said and done that, that you'll have more good deeds than bad deeds because God requires perfection. We sang about it earlier. Our God is holy. That means he's set apart. He's set apart from sin. There will be no sin in heaven. And any of us who are sinful need a remedy. We need our sins to be forgiven. We need to be given the very righteousness, the goodness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. And that's what Jesus gives us. He alone is the way because he alone lived a perfect life. He alone rose from the dead. He alone bore the weight of sin and the wrath of God upon him so that all those who would believe in him that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would be transformed. That would come from the darkness into the light. That would be made new. That is the first question that we all must ask ourselves. Do you believe that Jesus is the light of the world? Do you believe that he's the son of the man? That he is the son of God? That he is the promised one, the savior? But what about those of us who do believe? What question does this 
last point lead us to? It leads us to this one. Can you be surrounded by the light but not walk in it? Can you be surrounded by the light but not walk in it? Even scarier, can you be surrounded by the light but not see it? You have to see it in order to walk in it. Can you be void of both? And I'm going to use the light as the Word of God and the illumination that comes from the Word of God as we spend time in it. As you come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, set me aside. This is just the Word of God. As you hear the Word of God, what is the effect that it's having upon you? You are receiving light. This morning you have received light. God's light. The truth of Jesus reflecting on you. But the reality is that you can have all this light. You you can spend time in God's word every morning or every evening, whenever you do. You can listen to podcasts as you're driving from point A to point B of the best pastors and solid teaching. You can have a a wonderful library and keep getting new Books, theologically sound books, doctrinally good books. And you can read all of this and you can have all of this like sunshine coming and and showering down upon you. And yet you can miss it all and still be blinded to the truth. I don't know if this is a good illustration, but this is where my mind goes when I think of this. I used to work at a movie theater when I was in high school, in my first couple years of college. You go into the movie theater and you watch a movie. You don't have to go in there long. If I just went in there to adjust the temperature, because people are always complaining, right? I just go in there to adjust the temperature. And I'm only in there for about five minutes. I come out and I can't see, but my eyes are open and I can see. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I I could see, but I couldn't really see until my eyes adjusted. I wonder how many of us are in that, that little state as you come out and your eyes haven't quite adjusted to the light yet, and everything just doesn't look right. How many of us are missing what God is saying? Because we can't hear him and we can't see him. Three ways to walk in the light, to see the light from this text. First, remember that Jesus willingly suffered on the cross, giving us an example to follow. How do you stay away from missing the light? How do you stay away from having all this light around you, but not allowing it to drill down deep into your soul and change you? You remember that Jesus willingly suffered on on the cross, giving us an example to follow. Understand that the road ahead is a hard one. That that nobody in Scripture promises a believer a good, easy life. That comes after this one. Right now, for the unbeliever, this is the best life they will ever have. For us as believers, this is the worst life we will ever have. Right? Everything will be changed. As good as eternal life is right now, and I'm not saying that that we don't immediately receive eternal life, we do. But we see as things what? Dimly through a glass. 
One day this will all be changed. Our physical bodies that, that now pull us to sin, they'll be glorified. There'll be no sin around us, in us, through us. The temptation to sin will be gone. Right now what, what we are experiencing is just a little bit of what the Lord has for us. So it's not easy to follow the Lord, but we must take his example and recognize that when we're in a tough situation and our soul is bleeding and we are racked. Man, I was here a couple weeks ago. My wife was there. What, what hope do we have? The hope that we have is in Jesus Christ, that he has gone before us and that he has given us an example. You know what? It is perfectly fine for us to cry out to the Lord. I would say if you're not crying out to the Lord, then something is perfectly wrong. That you're not communing with him. Jesus is our example. Are you communing with him? Which leads us to the next one. Respond correctly to as Jesus did. When the light is no longer shining because of the circumstances that you find yourself in. What does that mean? Pray to the Father. Pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make that your first protocol. Even before going to your spouse. And I want you to go to your spouse. You guys should go to, as a family, pray. But before all of that, our first response should be to run to the Father like Jesus. And look to him. So remember that Jesus willingly suffered on the cross, giving us an example to follow. And in that example, we follow him and the peace of God will come. And we'll guide our hearts and minds on Jesus Respond correctly as Jesus did. Pray to the Father. And third and finally, resolve to follow Jesus' example when you want to give up. Instead, live for God's glory. Live for God's glory. And we need to stop living for ourselves. And we need to stop looking at our circumstances only through our vantage point. And we need to see God in everything that is going on. Even what is happening on the Gaza Strip right now. That none of this is beyond our God. And him taking something that is so horrendously terrible and flipping it upside down and turning it into something good. He does that in our lives. He's given us a history throughout all of mankind to reveal to us that that is the kind of God that he is. The question for us all this morning is, do you believe that? And second then, do you resolve to follow his example and live like that? No matter what, I will glorify you. Let me pray us out. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for the words of your son given to us. Oh, to think what it would be like if we did not hold your word in our hands, if we did not have your special revelation, that we might know you better, that we might know you more that we might honor you in all that we do, that we might see as you want us to see and to walk in the light of your Son. Help us to do that for your praise and your glory, Lord. And now as we respond in song, thank you for giving us voices mouths to rejoice in your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen.